Bow with me for prayer, please. Lord, when we think about that last song, I think about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, which comes out of Philippians chapter 2. And I thank you for that truth today. To this sinful, rebellious world of all generations from the very beginning till now and even those who come after us, this is a problem. And I want to thank you, Lord, for your sovereign grace and mercy that you have chosen to redeem us out of that world through the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ that our punishment is paid for, the wrath of God has been poured out on the Son of God and He fully drained that cup of judgment so that we could have His righteousness and we can't say thank you enough and we confess you as Lord because we want to and because you've revealed that to us and because it's right and because you are worthy of it. Thank you for that. And if there's anyone here who has not surrendered to Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that they would today. And pray, Lord, that all the people we come around every single day that don't know you as Savior and Lord, we would tell them and that we would be clear and that we would be passionate about it. And then, Lord, as I think about that last song, release your power to work in us and through us. And I'm afraid sometimes as believers, we're more than happy to have you work in us. Make me feel good. Make things work out in my life. Work miracles in my life. But to work through us means we're going to do something for you and to others. And it may be a witness to the lost as we just prayed about. It may be ministry to somebody who's saved because they need the encouragement or they need the help. And we pray, Lord, that whatever happens today through the preaching of your word to work in us and to be spread through us. Lord, we don't want to forget to pray for those who are lost. We don't forget to pray for those who are sick. We don't forget to pray for those who are suffering through various trials and persecutions. We don't forget to pray for those who are being disciplined by you, that you would restore them. We don't forget to pray for one another, that today we might truly fellowship around your word and we might glorify and honor your name. So meet needs today that we don't even know we have and do it by the power and the presence of your spirit through the proclamation and the reception of your word to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, take your Bibles this morning and let's turn to the book of Exodus. We're in 33. We're moving right along. Charles Spurgeon said it was through uh, much patience and perseverance that the snail made it to the ark. And we are being uh, kind of like a snail making our way through the book of Exodus. This is a long book, but we're getting there. We're getting there. And we get to this point now where Moses has made intercession for a second time for the, uh, on behalf of the people of Israel after their sin of the golden calf. And uh, so the Lord says, after Moses goes to him and says, look, if you're not going to honor your promise to them, and if you're going to blot them out, then take me out as well. He really loved these people. And so now the Lord is going to give him further instructions here. And as I was reading this, I thought about 
as we read these things, you'll see it as well. The heart of these people. See, these were the people of God. Imperfect people of God. Sinful people of God. And this isn't the last of their sin that we see with the golden calf. But nonetheless, they're his people. And the Lord looks at us with all of our sin, with all of our imperfections. And he says, yeah, but they belong to me. And that is a comforting thought that the Lord is a friend of sinners and that Christ receives sinful people because if he didn't, then none of us would have any hope. And as we look at these people and look at their lives, I thought about this uh, uh, title, True or False? Because I think one of the big, big problems we have in Christianity today is a lot of people will name the name of Christ and claim to be Christians, but they're really not. And if we examine why they would think that, it may be because some preacher didn't really preach the word of God or didn't give a complete gospel. He may have said, you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Okay. And then prayed a prayer over them and that took care of it. And they didn't know any more about what they were doing than a monkey would know about it. Uh, they just said, yeah, sign me up. I want to go to heaven when I die. It may be because they are in a liberal situation where the uh, pastor and the teachers don't believe the word of God and they constantly are questioning it and doubting it. There are some people who don't believe that these miracles and prophecies are actually valid. And in nearly every case, you can find some liberal theologian that uh, discounts it. And uh, Daniel, for example, that book has been under attack for hundreds if not thousands of years because people look and say oh there's no way Daniel could have known what was going to happen it must have been written afterwards by somebody who used his name as a pseudonym and uh, people just were mistaken about it all kinds of attacks on the word of God well I would expect people who are under that type of preaching probably to call themselves Christians and not really be a Christian but you know, it's even a problem where the truth is preached. The enemy is a deceiver. He comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. He is a liar and a father of lies from the beginning. And some people trust in a mystical experience. Well, I know I'm saved because I felt something or there was a mist all around me or something. There's nothing about that in the Bible. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Don't trust in that. Some people say, well, I know I'm saved because I felt a burning sensation from my head to my toe. Chapter and verse, please. That doesn't give you assurance. Some people say, well, I became a Christian when I quit drinking. Well, you probably should, but that doesn't save you. A lot of unsaved people get sober. I quit drinking, I quit taking drugs, or I knew I needed to turn over a new leaf. Well, a lot of people have self-reformation, but they are not born again by the Spirit of God. So we're going to look at some of these things in the life of ancient Israel, and we're going to see a picture of what a, uh, the people of God actually look like and uh, ask you to look at yourself. The Bible does call us to make our calling and election sure. The Bible commands us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. I got a criticism one time uh, a few years ago that um, all of a sudden you start preaching and people start doubting their salvation and uh, it you know kind of 
throwing a, a barb at me. And it's like, look, folks, I can't make you doubt your salvation. Right? Because I don't convince you that you're saved. I've never told any of you, oh, yeah, you're saved. That's not my job. The Bible says that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And so my prayer is not so much that you hear me and evaluate yourself by what I say, but that the word of God and the spirit of God would either bring you under conviction, if you're like I was, this is what a lot of people leave out. I have a heart for lost church members because I was one for so many years. And I care about your soul. I don't want you to be where I was. That you'll come under conviction or, listen to this, that through the preaching of the word, your salvation will be affirmed by the Spirit of God. Okay? So with that in mind, let's read Exodus chapter 33. And let's look at these people, the uh, people of God that were under the chastisement of God for correction, and also these people that had so displeased the Lord, and yet they were still a part of him. Listen to what God says, and let's take a look at what they do in uh, the course of these events. Exodus 33, we'll read the uh, first six verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusites. No applause? <laughs> Verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this, this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. That Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. So you get this picture. The Lord says, if I were to show up like you want me to, my holiness would consume all of you because of your sin. And so I'm going to withdraw. And I'm going to send my angel in front of you. And I'm going to give you Moses to lead you. Now Moses, go and take them and lead them to the place. And you're going to do it because I swore this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promises of God are always true because he not only does not lie, Scripture tells us that he cannot lie. And so the Lord deals with us on the basis of his covenant. And you and I have sinned like the people of Israel sinned. Though I know we don't make golden calves and bow down to them and 
those kind of things. But if you think about our sin and the kinds of sins that we do, every bit is bad. And other types of idols that we worship and bow down to, give our money to, and give our time to, and give our allegiance to. And if it were not for the covenant that Christ made for us, remember at the Lord's Supper, he said, take this cup and drink it, for this is my blood, and it's a new covenant that's made in my blood, right? And so the Lord deals with us on the basis of his covenant, of his promises, just like he did back in the Old Testament to them. It wasn't that these people that God looked down and said, hey, I could really use you, and man, you could really be something for me. God is saying to them, I could destroy you, and if I did what was fully right with my justice, I would wipe all of you out, just as he could say to us, he could have sent us to hell. And our sin certainly deserves that. And we don't come here this morning to proclaim our righteousness and the fact that we deserve heaven because we don't. We deserve hell and we deserve the wrath of God. But God was dealing with them on the basis of a covenant that he had made more than 400 years earlier to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am going to give this land in which you live to your descendants. And in the same way, God forgives us and he is merciful to us because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on a cross and he made a covenant between God and man and that covenant is a covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace in which we stand is not contingent upon us, but it is completely and wholly contingent upon the blood of Jesus being shed and the Father accepting us uh, accepting that offering on behalf of us. And so that covenant and God looking back on what Christ has done is what keeps us from being destroyed. Praise his name for that. And so we look at this and we are going to um, uh, take each one of these points and they're going to start with the true people of God and then we're going to make the point. So let's do point number one. The true people of God rely on God's promise. I think it's clear when you look at uh, beginning in verse 1 and uh, understand the context of all of this, these people had nothing, zero, zero in which to promote themselves before God. All they had was the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had blown it. They had sinned in a way that is unfathomable and unthinkable just a few months after coming out of Egypt, seeing everything that God did to Pharaoh, everything that God did to the land of Egypt, everything that God did at the Red Sea, all of those kind of things. And then here we find that Moses is gone. We don't know what's happened to him. And good night, it's been 40 days. Okay, Aaron, make us a golden calf. I mean, it just didn't take them very long at all. And when we look at this, the Lord allowed this to happen Certainly he knew about it before they did. And he allowed it to happen because he wanted to relate to his people as a God who forgives sinners and not as religious people who can hold God hostage and say, we deserve this because they didn't. They deserve to be wiped out. They deserve, when God said to Moses, step aside and I'll get rid of them and I'll raise up a new nation to you. That's what Israel actually deserved. 
And we don't always see our sin in light of what we deserve had it not been for God's mercy. And so God is doing this and making it clear, I'm not doing this for you. And you know, other times, read the book of Ezekiel. After they returned from the Babylonian exile, this is a long time later, right? They came back, and in the book of Ezekiel, God makes it clear, I did not do this for your sake. Why did he say that? Because then they would be strutting. Then they'd be looking at God saying, we've earned this. We deserve this. How dare you mistreat us? God's making it very, very clear. I'm doing this because I promised that I would do it to your forefathers, not because of the way that you have acted. And to the church, he says today, I bless you and I love you. I prepare a place for you in heaven and I indwell you and I teach you and I guide you and I forgive you. But it is not because of your actions. It's because of mine and what I did on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. And so my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if I could commend myself and say, Oh, Lord, I deserve your blessing. That would be something way, way less. If I could stand like the Pharisee and say, I'm thankful that I'm not as everybody else is, Lord. Look at me and look how good I is. God never deals with sinful humanity on the basis of their perceived goodness. But it's all by grace. And he remembers his promises and he remembers his covenant. And so these people are being dealt with on the basis of of what God promised to their ancestors, not on what they themselves had done, because what they had done, God would have had every right simply to destroy them and say, forget it, and uh, we'll put it aside and put it out of the way. Thank God we serve a God who is consistent and faithful and remembers his word and remembers his promise. Number two, you move on down. The true people of God rely on the power of God. Every other religion, you're going to find that people are relying on themselves. I've got to earn it. I've got to deserve it. I can do better. I've got this. I can handle it. Or to quote a phrase that's very contemporary for us, I am enough. Boy, that was belched out of hell, wasn't it? Because we're not enough. There's not anything we do in life to where we ourselves are enough. Everything is tainted with sin. Somebody said if all sin were blue, then that means everything we as humans do would be some shade of blue. Because everything we do is tainted by sin. Our marriages, our parenting, our citizenship, our worship... Everything tainted by sin. Have you ever noticed how you can be singing a great, great, great song? And one little thing can happen and all of a sudden you're noticing what somebody's doing across the auditorium instead of thinking about the glories of God. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to focus on the wrong things instead of the right thing, which would be the right one who is God. Think about how even the very best we can do and the things that we do, thinking we're doing it for the glory of God, and yet we get our feelings hurt when nobody notices, when nobody gives us a word of thanks, when nobody expresses themselves, or when somebody else gets the credit. Even Ronald Reagan said, 
that it's amazing how much can be done when no one cares who gets the credit. Why? Because that's an issue in government. That's an issue in the media. That's an issue in everyday life. And it even becomes an issue in the church. And we are powerless to do anything about that in our own strength. And that's why God had to come and God had to save us. God had to give us faith. God had to intervene. God had to turn us around because we didn't have the power to do anything in our life except to sin. And so the Lord Jesus brought himself as a sacrifice. What did I contribute to my salvation? Well, nothing except my sin and my need for it. I'm the reason Jesus died on the cross. I'm the reason God the Father and God the Holy Spirit abandoned the Son of God. I'm the reason for his cries of agony and pain. I'm the reason for all of that because I have no hope and I have no power in myself. And so the Bible doesn't just say, do better and you'll get to heaven. Do enough good works where the good outweighs the bad and you'll make it to heaven. The Bible says very clearly that all of my righteousness and all of yours is as filthy rags. And boy, if you put us all together, that's a lot of filth and a lot of rags. We just don't have the power. And if we do, if we do kind of say, well, I did this and I made it and I'm a good person, not, until, uh, not when you peel back the layers. Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And so God doesn't just look at the actions. He looks at the inside. He looks at the motive. He looks at it like this. What would you do if there were no consequences? What would you do if it wouldn't cost you anything? What would you do if nobody would think badly about you? What would you do if sin didn't really have any penalty to it at all. And that's who you really are. And those things that pop up inside of you, I don't know what that happened, that's not me. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you, like me, have a deceitful, wicked heart that strays so easily. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's true. For all of us. And so listen. The people of God. The true people of God. They rely on the power of God. How are they going to take this land? How are they going to be the people of God. In the promised land? I don't care how big they are. In terms of population. I don't care how, I don't care how skilled they are. I don't care what size their army is. I don't care what weapons they have. There was no way this group of people. Was going to be able to conquer that land. And you notice in verse 2, and I will send my angel before you. And then things are going to happen because the people of God don't do things in their own strength. They don't try to be all of that in a bag of chips. What they do is they humble themselves before the Lord and they realize that apart from Christ we can do nothing. How do we know that? Because he told us. Whatever is born of flesh, it's flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. And Jesus said, and apart from me, you can do nothing. When are we going to take that to heart? Nothing, he said. And that's where the people of Israel were. If it had not been for the power of God, 
They would not be out of Egypt. If it had not been for the power of God, they would have been slaughtered by the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Had it not been by the power of God, they would have died of hunger and thirst in the desert. Had it not been by the power of God, they wouldn't know right from wrong. Had it not been for the power of God, they would never be able to conquer the promised land. And you and I need to learn the same thing. We don't fight our battles in our own strength, we've been delivered by the Lord. It's the Lord God who defends us. It's the Lord who feeds us. It's the Lord who provides for us. It's the Lord who forgives us. I mean, everything that we have is by the Lord. And so we don't have any rights to anything. We don't really own anything. It all belongs to the Lord. In fact, the Bible says that we are to remember that we're not our own even. We don't even belong to us, for we're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify the Lord in your body and spirit, which are the Lord's. So we rely upon the power of Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, to make it real clear, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. I mean, you're just ragtag slaves, not even all that big in population in terms of a nation. You were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And that's the word that we have today. We're not all that. The Lord just really is thrilled because he has us on his team because he needed us. No, we ought to be thrilled to be on the Lord's side because he was merciful to us. He called us and he brought us to be his people. And we are the ones that are most honored by that, we need to quit acting like we're doing God a favor. To quit acting like He needs us and what would He do without us? And if God doesn't behave the way that I want Him to, I'll just quit. And a lot of people quit church because they're mad at God. A lot of people quit reading their Bible because they're mad at God. As if that is going to hold God hostage or diminish Him in any way. Brother, sister, God does not need us. We desperately need him. Got to think about that, don't we? Number three, the true people of God rely on God's provision and I might add his protection. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, who put that there? And you know, that's kind of a weird uh, saying, but that's a Hebrewism of, of saying this. Milk is what you need for nourishment. And the honey is what you get for enjoyment. And God is saying, I'm going to take you to a land where all your needs are going to be met. And then it's going to be a sweet land. You're going to own your own land, raise your own crops. You're going to see your children and see your grandchildren and all of that. Because this is a perpetual promise that I've made to you. A land that is sweet. A land where life is going to be sweet. After the bitterness of slavery. Flowing with milk and honey. And uh, then he says... But you're not going to get the full force of my presence right now because if I did, you would die. God was actually not punishing them as much as he was protecting them 
by saying, I'm going to send my angel, but I'm going to pull back on the full sense of my presence right now. That's kind of a sad thing. And yet at the same time, in this case, it was a necessary thing. And he said, because you're still a stiff-necked people. They, they hadn't been fully sanctified. They'd been forgiven, but they hadn't fully conquered this problem. Just like you, you're forgiven by Christ, but you still sin. They had been forgiven, but they're still going to sin. This isn't the last encounter they're going to have. This isn't the last time God is going to be displeased with them. And so the land that is going to sustain them had been created by God. And God was also the one that was going to give it to them, the provision of God. And he's going to give them an angel to go before them so that they could actually conquer it. Because as we said before, they couldn't do it in their own strength or their own power. Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, chapter 6, verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They always bring that up, don't they? To give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, that when you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name and you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. See, even before they go into the land, Moses has to remind them, don't do what you did before. Learn from it. Somebody said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. That's kind of what Moses is saying here. You've got a history with all of this. You've got a history of idolatry, a history of forgetting God, a history of disobeying God. Now, when you get into the land and everything goes well and you're fat and sassy, don't forget God. He's the one that brought you into this land and the one that has provided for you. And those of us that are truly saved, we understand that everything we have belongs to the Lord and is from the Lord. The Bible says he gives us all things freely to enjoy. But we enjoy them to the glory of God. We don't make idols out of them. We don't sell our souls to them. And so everything from our family to our possessions to our jobs to our nation to our freedom, we don't make idols out of those things. They are secondary to the Lord. And I'm afraid that in America we've gotten fat and sassy and have forgotten the Lord just like Moses warned Israel. And number four, the true people of God display repentance. You're never going to stop repenting while you're on this earth. Repentance is not just something you do at salvation. It's something that you do every time you sin. And if we say we have no sin, the Apostle John said we're a liar and the truth is not in us. Continually display repentance. Does your life show repentance to other people? Do you act like you're a good person in front of people and lost people think you're just better than they are? 
You're just more moral than they are. You just got it together better than they do. You were raised better than they were. That's not the issue. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, even us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why did John have to write that? Because we sin. And our lives ought to display repentance. The Bible said that when the people heard this bad news, that they mourned. Do you have a godly sorrow over your sin or do you tolerate it? Do you look forward to another opportunity to indulge in it? Godly sorrow works repentance, the Bible says. They mourned and then they, uh, each one, or pardon me, no one put on his ornaments. So this isn't the time for celebrating and strutting around with the riches and the wealth of Egypt on our bodies. We're humble. We're humble before the Lord. We show that before the Lord. And when you uh, think about sin and its consequences, it affects us. It affects our family. It affects the way we do business. It affects the way that we act. It affects our attitude. It affects the way that we treat other people. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul said, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, the world, all they're sorry about is they got caught. The world, all they're sorry about is they look bad, and they're embarrassed, and they're humiliated. Well, you should be. You should be. But for the Christian, we have a godly sorrow, which means it's a sorrow directed toward God. It's a sorrow to realize we have sinned against a holy God and that we don't deserve anything from him, but by grace he gives us everything, even forgiveness through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that the sorrow also comes from God because we feel the same sorrow about sin that God sees, that God feels. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he wasn't hanging there going, yippee, bring it on. He shrieked with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Because the sorrow of sin came upon him when he became sin. And he had never experienced that before. And yet we are entertained by sin. We play with sin. We look forward to sin. We downplay sin. We think it's no big deal. The true people of God, they show repentance with remorse and a godly sorrow for their sin. Here's a fifth thing. The true people of God recognize their unworthiness. You see, every other religion acts as though there's a staircase, a stairway to heaven, to quote a song. That there's a ladder, that there's a mountain, and I'm going to climb it, and there ain't no mountain high enough, right? And we act like that old song is kind of talking about us toward God. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from getting to you. Yes, there is. There's a gulf that separates humanity and God. And it's an uncrossable gulf. You might as well try to jump across the Pacific Ocean. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And when we look at this and we realize unworthiness, you know, the Bible says to Israel, you stiff-necked people, I could come up in your midst and in one moment consume you. They weren't any better than the Egyptians. What happened in the 10th plague of the Egyptians? Death. Is Israel any better because, oh, our golden calf was more holy than the Egyptians? 
Or we only had one golden calf and the Egyptians had a whole lot. I mean, what are they going to claim here? And this is where the true people of God relate to God on the basis of their own unworthiness. They recognize their unworthiness. Has God blessed your life? You're not worthy of it. He's gracious. He's kind. He's loving. Has God brought any happiness into your life? Have you had a splash over of heaven come into your life? Where you've had enough to eat, you've had enough to drink, you've had enough to wear, you've had shelter and clothing, you've had relationships, you've had laughter, you've had enjoyment. You don't deserve any of that. That's just a foretaste of glory divine. That's just a splash of heaven of what you're going to experience for eternity unabated. But you're not worthy of it. In fact, even in heaven, they don't sing, Worthy am I, for I made a decision for Christ. Worthy am I, because I tithed. Worthy am I, because I was at church every time the doors were open. They don't sing that, do they? They sing, Worthy the Lamb that was slain. And all the attention goes on Jesus. See, salvation is not about our worthiness. It's about His. And that's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we examine our lives, and what do we always find? Unworthy. But when we look at that cup and that piece of bread and we remember Jesus, what, do our, what does our soul cry out? What does the Holy Spirit cry out within us? He is worthy. So when I prayed this morning, I didn't come in the worthiness of me. Oh, Lord, I come before you because I've read your Bible every day this week. So do a lot of liberals, folks. Well, I come to you, Lord, because I haven't had any kind of intimate relations with anyone other than my wife. So I have a lot of Muslims. What is the difference? I come to him on the basis of the worthiness of Christ, the sinless Son of God who perfectly satisfied all of God's laws and demands and then allowed himself to be put on a cross and punished. For all of my sin and all of my lawless deeds. And that is true for you if you are a born-again person. You don't strut around, I'm the elect of God. No, I'm unworthy of that. I'm unworthy of salvation. And it humbles me and it humbles you if you are a true child of God. This is an amazing, amazing thing. 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things became our examples. What things, Paul? What we're reading about in Exodus. They became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Remember we read that. That's about the golden calf. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition, our warning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands 
Take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Did you notice that? Those verses at the end that we're so used to hearing about are tied together with our understanding of the Old Testament. Those things were written to us that we could learn from them and look to God and not be like them. That's the people of God. Number six, the true people of God are humbly obedient. So the Lord says, take off your ornaments. This is no time for celebration. How will we tell those that are truly repentant from the ones that are not? Well, just look. If the guy's got on the earrings and the jewelry and all of that, you know he doesn't take God seriously. And God knows it as well. And those who do take all of that off of them, they knew that they were serious with God. That was a command of God. How serious are you about God and about His commands? I think about... All of this and think about how they humbled themselves. And I think about how this humble obe uh, obedience to them is uh, resulting in God not destroying them because they realized they were worthy of it and all the other things that we've said. But our God is a loving, gracious, and forgiving and patient God or we wouldn't be here. And so what can we do and how do we respond to God? If he says, take off the ornaments, we don't reason with him. We don't negotiate with him. We don't whine about having to do it. We just get rid of them because they're not necessary anyway. And that's what the people of Israel did. But when I think about that, it doesn't make me just say, wow, these people were great people because they weren't. But I would like for you to do something as we conclude. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians 2? And would you stand together? And I want you to see the words that I used in this point are directly used about someone who is worthy, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's stand together in honor of God's Word. Philippians 2. Are we ready? Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and there is, if there is any comfort of love, and there is, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if any affection and mercy, and there is, what do we do in response to that verse 2? Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That means that person sitting by you. Esteem them better, right? Verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he 
Here we are, our point. Humbled himself and became obedient. Humble obedience. That was that last point. Humble obedience. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we could stop there, except that the next verse has a therefore, and that means we've got to go on. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, not just when I'm around, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Are you really saved? Is it working out of your life? Are you showing those fruits? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, the Bible, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And may God add blessing to the reading of his word. And can the people of God say amen to that? That solves our problems. So check yourself, and we're through. Do you fully trust Christ alone? Trust God alone? Are you trusting in God's power or your decision? A lot of people are. Are you more impressed with your faith or God's provision? Are you proclaiming your worthiness or admitting to your sin? And do you see yourself compared to God or do you simply compare yourself to others? Do you long to be obedient to God or just do things your way and follow the path of least resistance? May God help us, first of all, to truly be saved by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. May God help us never to ever think that it has anything to do with us. And may God, by his grace and by his power, let us walk in a way that confirms that we are children of God and that we learn from the disobedience of others, especially in the word of God. Don't be like them. Walk with God. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we conclude this time, we want to thank you that your word makes things so incredible incredibly clear clear and convicting and I pray that the truth of the word of God would hit us right where it needs to hit us and I pray Lord that if we are not saved and playing a game may you save us may we repent and put our faith in Christ alone and if we are saved I pray that as we went through these things 
Every saved person in here said, I see that in my life. Not to the degree that I want and not in a perfect way, but I see the fruit of that in my life. Thank you, Lord. And so we say to all of this, to God be the glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. Okay? You got an announcement?